Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. This episode of Sound and Vision is sponsored by Kensington Panel and Stretcher. Kensington Panel and Stretcher offers high-quality custom surfaces for painting and mixed-media artwork. All products are handmade and designed to meet the highest standards of strength and stability. To learn more or place an order, visit them online at kensingtonpanels.com. Sound and Vision is also brought to you in part by Charter Coffee House, located on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn, one block from the Graham L stop. Charter combines dedication and skill refined over a decade in some of the most detail-oriented dining experiences in the world and applies them to your daily coffee experience. Using a variety of coffee beans from four renowned roasters and ingredients from carefully selected farms and distributors across the world, Charter has created an eclectic and expansive food and drink menu ranging from quick bites to casual dining, all prepared with passion and attention to detail. Charter's determination to make an impact on their community doesn't stop at the customer. A portion of all profits goes to charities focused on revitalizing communities and youth development across the world. Find out more at www.chartercoffee.com or follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK and stay tuned for an exclusive collaborative coffee blend from Charter and Middle State Coffee Roasters coming soon. Ellen Birkenblit is a painter who was born in Patterson, New Jersey and graduated from the Cooper Union in 1980. She received an Arts and Letters grant from the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 2013 and a Guggenheim Fellowship in the following year. She's had solo shows at the Anton Kern Gallery, the Drawing Center, Rudolf Jansen, Susan Vailmetter, White Columns, and group exhibitions at many venues including Gladstone Gallery, the Museum of Modern Art, Brand New Gallery, the MCA in Chicago, the Centre Pompidou, Derek Eller, Essex Flowers, and the New Museum. Her work has been covered in just about every art publication, and she's in the collections of the Aspen Art Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, MoMA, the Whitney Museum, and many more. I went to Ellen's Gowanus studio to talk to her about her early days in the East Village, punk rock, fabrics, process, and physicality in painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. That's a little texture to it. <laughs> so anyways, why don't we start with where you got started because you're from Patterson, New Jersey, mm-hmm. I believe. And my extended family lives in Mawa, New Jersey. Oh, interesting. Which is um, very, very close. Yeah. Sometimes when people live in New York, they've often come from New Jersey or right. nearby. Yeah. Um, I was born there. I didn't grow up there. I, I lived there until I was two, uh-huh. um, at which point I decided to move. Um, and um, Where did you go? I, actually, <laughs> I had to move because I was two and my family was moving. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it wasn't your choice. <laughs> <laughs> my father worked for IBM. He was a research chemist at IBM. Oh, yeah. And they, there was a brand new Thomas J. Watson research gorgeous lab that opened in Yorktown Heights okay in New York in West Upper Westchester not fancy Westchester and um, that's where my family moved so that's really where I grew up were they were you in Patterson because of his work before that no that's where my 
on my mother's side, that's where they everyone lived oh, okay. or was from. Yeah. My mother was born in Patterson. Um, her parents, my grandparents, moved there when they immigrated from Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a big. It, it had a large Jewish population mm-hmm. of immigrants. Yeah. Um, so. And now it has fairly close a large Hasidic community. Yes. In Monzi, which is right on the other side. Oh yeah, Monzi is yeah. huge. So, Westchester. So you're you're kind of a close to the city person. I mean, growing up, did you? Yeah, no, come to the city all the time. Um, and my grandparents lived in the South Bronx, so mm-hmm. uh, on my father's side. So we were constantly either in the South Bronx or and we came into Manhattan all the time. So. Um, what was the South Bronx like then? It was really bad. Um, my father was born in the same apartment that my grandparents lived in mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Um, when he was born in 1928, it was a slightly different neighborhood. By the time uh, he had left and my grandparents stayed there until my grandfather died in the 70s, um, it was the South Bronx. Right. It was um, <laughs> it was really dangerous, and I mean, it was never a great neighborhood, um, right. even when my father was growing up. But it became um, it was burnt out at that point. Yeah. Um, so you have you know visions of you know just it being really dicey and yeah. Well, the whole city was pretty dicey yeah. at that point anyway. I mean, I I was going to school at on the Lower East Side, uh, at Cooper Union, actually, the East Village, which was kind of dicey yeah, um, in the 70s. So it wasn't, I mean, it was the whole city. You were pretty used to it, I guess. Well, when you were a kid coming to visit the but city. When I was a kid, which would be in the 60s, um, visiting Manhattan was pretty magic. I mean, it was always magical. And I loved going to the South Bronx, too. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. And did you, were you doing, or I mean, were you creative in school? Were you going to museums at all? Or? Yeah, I would go, um, it was really easy to take the, the Metro North train from yeah. Croton Harmon right into Grand Central. So I would do that all the time and go up to the Met or MoMA, um, often with my parents. And then eventually when I was, you know, 14 or 15, I started going on my own, um, and was that the draw, or were you just doing like touristy things, or were you going to see artwork? Oh, I would just go to to the Met, or yeah. my parents would go to the opera, mm-hmm. um, or yeah, I mean it was. Or we'd go hang out in Central Park. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Cr- when when you were growing up, were you a creative person? Were you doing a lot of drawing and? Or was it something that was just in the background? Or what were you studying in high school? Or what were the subjects that you were really into? Um, I started drawing as soon as I could pick up a pencil. So I, I started when I was probably three, yeah. drawing and painting, and never stopped. So that was really always um, how I did things, was through drawing and painting, or thought. I should say it's not how I did things, but um, that's just the way I was built somehow. Yeah. That's how I came out. So, um, and were your parents creative? 
Uh, they were creative in different ways. My father um, was a chemist, so mm -hmm. I think, um, and he also was an amateur photographer. Um, he started taking photographs when he was a teenager in the Bronx, and he built a little dark room in his bathroom there, which was, you know, he lived in a tenement, so he just built a very um, rudimentary dark room. Mm -hmm. uh, he built the same type of thing when we were growing up in our house in Yorktown. So uh, I grew up developing photographs with him, printing. Um, he, I mean, he loved the process. He loved buying film in bulk mm -hmm. and rolling it into canisters and developing the film, printing photographs. Um, so he was a very process and chemical oriented person. Right, that's like the perfect um, synthesis of the two things: of like mm -hmm. creativity, experience, and then the chemical process of yeah. photography. Yeah, the the smell of it, the you know feel of it, yeah. and and having that um, record of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it was in our house, it felt very natural to do that. It didn't feel like um, we're off to the dark room now. It right. felt much like we're just going downstairs doing yeah. this. Um, and then during the day, he was a research chemist and he was growing um, crystals for the first uh, computers. I mean, IBM at that point had computers that took up right, they a were like room. Space stations. Size. Yeah. <laughs> And they became very hot, and um, right. the room was, you know, it was it was a very special thing. So he developed um, how to make information go onto smaller chips, yeah. basically, so we could have what we have now. Right. Uh, that was all starting in the late fifties and sixties. So he was working on that. That's pretty cool. So. So you got the both sides of the spectrum there. I mean, something really technological and advanced, kind of like conceptually you know like there's there's a rigor to that sort of process and then also the creativity of photography and then the way those two things merge must have been cool to experience when you were a kid yeah and I I feel like I'm so similar to his uh the way he always was um he liked to just be in his lab or in the dark room yeah. quietly making something and although he um I became a painter um I feel like my day-to-day -day is so similar to how he had his day-to-day. -day. So you have like a very specific process and kind of I think it's like ritual. an obsession. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very obsessive, um, naturally prone to being uh, in the studio or right. in a quiet Yeah, place. so I'm going to go out on a limb and, and assume that they were supportive of you being creative and following that. Like in high school, did you think, okay, I want to go to art school? Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think um, there was, I had no other plans ever. Mm -hmm. I knew that I would be painting. Yeah. Um, I mean, at one point I thought maybe I would become a nurse when I was eight years old, but um, right. because I had an aunt who was a nurse and I, I still, I mean, I think that's an amazing profession. I, uh, I'm just not, I think I'm only built to do what I do. Right. And I ended up doing it and continuing it. Yeah, and I had that. I was, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I had a dog and I liked my dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And at a certain point I was like, well, this is probably not for me. <laughs> and you, you kind of change your, your direction. But it seemed like something that you always loved to do. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it just, um, that's how I'm, I, yeah, I, I was built for this kind of life and um, I'm happiest when I'm quietly in the studio yeah. uh, working and well, yeah. yeah, I love that you went to Cooper because Cooper Union is this, you know, synthesis of the sciences and arts, isn't it? I mean, or at least that's the, the engineering. Legacy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how was how did you choose to go there? Was it just being in the city? And I applied to a few different schools. Um, my parents actually were not thrilled that I applied to schools in the city at that point because it was I was entering school uh, college in 1976. <laughs> yes. And um, Not the best campus. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, New York was bankrupt and extremely fantastic, but it wasn't an easy navigation for an 18-year-old, yeah. maybe, who had spent my life, you know, my father and mother rightfully thought of me as a bit of a hick. Mm -hmm. And um, even though, I mean, we didn't live far from the city, I still, um, it was rough. And so they didn't, they weren't thrilled, but... When I got accepted at Cooper, they were extremely happy for me, and, yeah. and there was no question. So, but of course, they were very overprotective. And um, worried, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, they were very worried. I mean, I have a kid, a young kid here in the city, and it's a lot yeah. safer now than when I first moved here. I can't imagine what it would have been like in the, the 70s. Yeah. So, I, I agree with them now. As an older person, you, sometimes you look back at what things that were you know, advised against. You go, you know what, I, I understand now. <laughs> then I, I was it. like, no, I yeah. really want to go. And <laughs> and I did go. And it was great. Yeah. It did really you have siblings? Was. Yeah, I have three. Uh, I have an older brother, a younger sister, and a younger brother. Oh, well, so that wasn't, <laughs> that, that wasn't mitigated by the fact that there were, you had some, because sometimes if it's the only child, I can imagine the parents really worrying, you know, like sending off one of their kids to the city. But yeah, right. There would have been backup if something had happened to me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you always feel, <laughs> well, there's that perception that, you know, an only child is going to be a little more, the parents are going to be a little more stressed or like cautious or overprotective of the one kid. I think I was just such a weirdo that they were worried about me no matter what, even okay. if they had 20 kids. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think there was something worrisome about me as a teenager. You were the one out of the four that they were <laughs> the most worried about. <laughs> uh, the, the, the weak one somehow. Oh, really? You know, the, not physically, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they must, I mean, you've, <laughs> you did well for yourself. I mean, you've carved out your, you know, what you love to do and you've made it work, which is impressive. I, thank you. There's a strength to that for sure. It took a long time to, to get, um, to, yeah, for that to happen, I guess. But, um, I, I actually, yeah, I come from a really, I just, to, to um, finish up the, the sentiment here, no, my whole family, including my siblings and parents, have always been so supportive, and yeah. we're a tight, uh, tight-knit bunch. That's so, great. Yeah. So you're a young person in the city going to art school. What was it like? I mean, did you, did you love school itself, or were you... Not really, actually. I... Um, I love that. I loved the time in the city. I loved my time. Um, school was hard. I um, 
the best part about it were I had some amazing teachers. Um, and I also had, for the first time, a little, not the first time, but I had a little studio that was my own yeah. at school. And I learned how to um, be alone there. Mm -hmm. Like, you just start doing that mechanical, not mechanical, but, you know, that almost muscle memory thing of going somewhere every day and picking up your brushes, paint, and working and that you know how that works some some days and doesn't and what happens some days and doesn't you just start getting into that um it's like a, it's an athletic thing almost yeah like a, the practice of it you it's know a of practice like, yep. of going to sort of like learn and go but, and, but it's just the ritual of going to the place yeah. in a way and how it's nothing magic usually happens um it's a grind <laughs> sometimes yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that's I think that's a real gift of school is that you can suspend reality for a you couple have of years that gift a few years and just go. It's it's a fantastic. It's gift. the center of your world. You know, all you have to do is make some food happen and then go and make make art for right and or have a and or um, add the part time job in there. I worked at a health food store, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's all you have to do. And um, I would imagine. Um, around that time, there's some pretty good energetic music going on in the Lower East Side. Oh yeah, you know, that was. I mean, as punk is going strong at that point. Were you? What was your? Were you into music? Were you ever going to yeah. see stuff? I've always been into music, and um, I started to see a lot of the bands that played at CBGBs. I started to see them before I moved to New York City. Oh, so really? when I was sixteen. 17 I w I saw Patty Smith mm -hmm. a lot and um, Richard Hell and uh, and then when I moved into the city in 1976 I I was literally around the corner from CBGB so I I spent a lot of time there yeah I really did and it was it was pretty amazing um, who I got to see and um, the yes it was pretty um, easy to do that yeah i mean the ramones and, and the ramones and, and talking um, heads and all talk, these people. yes i'm I saw, sure you saw all that i right? saw all of them blondie um, yeah and um yeah millions of bands yeah the mumps the marbles yeah. um did you ever see the germs there i don't remember if i did yeah actually see them i mean they probably yeah i wonder but but that I must have been have. amazing to see that stuff in its heyday. The and dead the boys, yeah, no, yeah. they and they were great. All and the them. energy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, did the, I would imagine that the, you know, I wasn't around at that time, so I imagine the the energy of the of the area was just charged, you know, with like all this creative kind of. I don't know. There's a if you're but going to CBGBs every other night or going to see live that live music, I would imagine when you go to your studio, you feel like, yeah, I want to just kick out the jams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's how I felt. Yeah. I was, I, I am um, still, I feel like music, paint, sound, you know, sound, vision, smell, taste, all feel very interrelated to yeah. me in terms of, um, like I don't differentiate between all those things. I mean, I, 
yes, intellectually I do. But when I paint, I think in terms of sound and color to me has uh, creates a taste in my mouth, you know, in my mind, I should say, Um, or different passageways in the paint feel like a sound to me. So, um, yeah, I don't, I think that, yes, going to see music, listening to music, um, or just having music in my head has always been part of my working process. Yeah, I mean, there's a sonic element visually to your work, for sure. So, but hope we, so. Yeah. So that, you know, going to school, getting a studio, getting that up and running, I mean, was it basically from there on out, it's okay, I'm going to have a space in the city, just make work. Were you super social? Were you meeting a lot of people and had like a community or were you kind of doing your own thing? You know, because uh, once, you gra- once you graduated, you just set up shop in the city, right? Yeah, you could call it that. <laughs> um, when I graduated, I moved. I was living in the East Village during my time at Cooper. And then I made the huge leap when I graduated to move to the Lower East Side. Um, <laughs> so I moved to Ludlow <laughs> Street. A friend of mine who worked at New York Central um, knew some people who had found apartments on Ludlow Street and it was really cheap. And he gave me the number of the landlord there, the, these two guys who were great. And then I moved to Ludlow Street and I had, yes, the cheapest apartment I could possibly find it. And it was really crappy. I was going to say it had all the amenities. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes, all in one right. little space, including a bathtub in the kitchen and um, a toilet in a closet. And um, yeah. Um, so, yes, I moved to Ludlow Street I and mean, I said, was it, was it uh, just real quick on that? Was it horrible or do you kind of wax poetic on it now? Considering no, it was how horrible. It was actually dangerous. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Not an, a great place to be. No, it was sad. It was a yeah. sad little place. And um, I remember looking at a bird that had was on the sidewalk in front of my house and thinking, just fly away. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> there are other West, streets. Right. Westchester's really nice. Why don't you fly up there? <laughs> oh, it's like a metaphor, isn't it? I think it might have been. But I mean, there are certain people who really, especially these days with how polished certain areas of the city have bec- gotten and how expensive it is, you know, sort of pine for these days of, of when it was a little more rough and tumble and you could actually have a space in the city and be creative. Right. No, I understand all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it gets talked about a lot, I think. Yeah. Um, so there's got to be a happy medium right, <laughs> <laughs> where you can afford to live here, but it's not you know, just that bad and that rough? Well, there, I don't think, yeah. Um, well, the, it was actually, no, on the romantic side, it was great because I could afford to live there, barely. Mm-hmm. Um, I had landlords who were very kind to me, and at one point I couldn't pay my rent for a year, and they let me pay them when I could, which wow. was, you know, I mean, that's how broke I was, and Mm -hmm. that's how kind they were. So, (laughs) What were you doing for work when you got out of school? Um, I was a sewer, a seamstress, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had always made my own clothing since I was in eighth grade, and I was, I loved sewing. I was a really good sewer, and I also, because I couldn't afford clothing, went, uh, not, it's not, 
I couldn't afford cool clothes right. when I was a young adult, but I could make them. So I made a lot of really cool clothing for my, clothes for myself that people would comment on and then ask me if I would make them a version. So I ended up making clothing for people. Oh, that's cool. Um, that I designed, and that's how I supported myself. Nice. And so I had friends, two friends on Ludlow Street who had a shop, Mary Adams and Amy Downs, and they made um, wedding dresses mm-hmm. and hats. One of them made, Mary made dresses and Amy made hats, and they asked me to sell my clothing in their shop. So um, that's how I got by. That's great. Is that something that you did for a long time? Nick? Yeah, I did it up until just a few years ago, not necessarily through that shop, right. but in different forms. Yeah. So and you've so you've had a sort of eye on fashion for a long time. You've been interested in fashion. I've I mean, obviously, there's some in iconography sewing, in your work. Actually, yeah. like fabrics. Fabric and sewing. Where yeah. do you get where did you get all your fabrics from? Well, there used to be a million really great fabric shops on Orchard Street, yeah. one block away from Ludlow. So I think there's maybe one down there. Now. Yeah, I think there might be one. I don't think it, there is even one anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I remember seeing those when I first moved to the city. There would be like these tiny little right, these tiny little yeah. storefronts where there was just fabric in there. Yeah. Big bins of fabric. It was yeah, so it was kind of perfect. I um I lived and worked and sewed and everything all in my apartment on Ludlow Street. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I set up shop, so to speak, in my apartment, which was very tiny. And um, I did everything in there. I painted, I sewed, I lived. Um, I took baths in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was your work like at that point? Well, fortunately, it was very small. Um, yeah. Starting when I um, when I was working at Cooper, my work was really small, and I could have probably b- worked bigger. I think I just liked working small. Um, I was coming again from this idea of photographs being a tangible diary in my in the house where I grew up. Yeah, and painting small felt like an extension of that. Like I would paint with the canvas in my lap. The, the paintings were really small. Um, and I continued that way up until maybe the 90s. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, um, I was working small, and so my apartment being small wasn't a hindrance. Right. And was the the imagery abstract, or was it representational? or Like, what were it you inspired by? The imagery was not any really any different than it is now I'm or I should say the paintings because I have always been and still am and will always be I think um, inspired by my physicality by what my hand and arm naturally create Mm -hmm. as a personal calligraphy so um, even as a child I worked um, that way and a lot of my Things that I did when I was a kid were in most of them were in profile, mm-hmm. as I still do. Um, they almost always face the right, so there's a bit of um, obsessive and natural component. And I say obsessive slash natural because I feel like if I let myself do what I naturally do physically with a canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are elements that are continuous. Um, but again, they're like a diary. They keep morphing, they change, um, and they also become a springboard for paint and color mixing, which is something that makes my heart beat very fast in a great way as yeah. I work. Um, so I'm basically telling myself a story through material as I work. Yeah. Well, there's such a strong sense of line and drawing in, in the paintings. And then there's also, you know, there's relationships to textile giving you, you know, this texture and pattern that you're working off of. There's a, for me, I read into it, you know, comics and action and animation and cartoons and fashion and, and animals, you know, there's animals and there's all this these <laughs> unique ingredients things, that have yeah. come together, but in a really, I don't want to say a simple way, but a very, it feels direct, even though in your hand is doing a lot of working and kind of, you know, there seems to be layering and, and there's a looseness to the way that you're finishing things and there's, you're revealing some things and covering things, but at the same time, it feels very direct in a way. I mean, is that kind of, how did you get to that kind of, not only the, you know, the subject matter and the, the representational images that you're kind of using within the painting and how did you get to that process as well? I mean, it's a complicated kind of like collision of these different things. I think I got to it and I'm still getting to it by just working. Mm -hmm. Like there, I don't think I had, I didn't, I've never set out with um, a finished thought in mind, uh, a finished painting in mind. I feel like the action of making a painting is what makes my paintings. Yeah. So um, the only thing I set out to do is allow um, myself to peel back some layers in my mind of, um, you know, the super ego or the or the ego and get more to the id mm -hmm. um, as I work. And obviously that's not a state that I don't, I don't know, I can't sustain it, but I, those are the moments where the most uh, truthful stuff comes out. And so again, that, that leads back to me relying on my physical, what, how my arm will physically move. I feel mm -hmm. like that's got a mind that's not um, thinking too hard. It's, it just is. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though, because if you, based on the description you just gave of like what's motivating you and what's like a core kind of like driving force in the paintings, which is this exploration through process and through the physicality of maneuvering and within the painting, I would envision like these abstract formal paintings, you know, and kind of, but the iconography in them is so strong. These kind of like childlike animals and like fingernails and that are, have pol bright polish on them and these boots and patterns. So there's, for me, I'm bringing in this relationship of, you know, like kind of, uh, I don't know, like fashion mixed with, um, you know, a childlike play in it. You know, there's all these conceptual moments or like inflections from the imagery that you're using. So where did that come from? How did you kind of find, were they just things that are interesting to you? You know, like, I think those are things I started doing when I was really little that just didn't go away. Yeah. Um, they just, 
it's like how I know how to make, it's how I think through things as I make things, I should say. Um, and not that I'm tr doing a childish thing, but I think that's how I understand my way of making a painting have life to it. Yeah. Um, and they're just, a, they, those things are just a part of it. They're, in a way, they're foils too because they're, they're not what they seem. They're, they're holding on to sections of pure paint that, because a lot of my paintings are very big, if you get close to them physically, you can only see sections of paint. You can't see the whole thing. And I paint them obviously very close. Like I'm not yeah. using a um, Matisse stick or whatever <laughs> that was called. 20 yards back from your painting, <laughs> just like doing little touches. Yeah. So you're getting into it. You're like in that surface working around. My face it. is yeah. right in there. So they fall apart as what they might be as an image um, when I'm actually making them. I mean, of course, I stand back and go up closely. I'm kind of all over the place in the studio, but um, I don't know. I, I really, um, I don't know how to explain the imagery. And um, or to me, it doesn't feel like imagery. It feels, and I, I, I know it, you know, everyone would say, but it is. Um, I feel like it's, um, they're ways of making my eye move through the canvas as I work. They're a way of telling me a story as I work. Mm -hmm. But to me, the most important part or the, the part that is taking my um, mind and heart captive the most is the color and the paint. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's it's taking these sort of signifiers and kind of like emptying out, you know, an explicit understanding of what they are and just using them as kind of like instruments within the painting. I mean, to me, like your, your work since I've encountered it has always felt kind of punk. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. Like there's a, there's a loud brashness to it. It's not polished. It's in your face. And even some of these like figures or animals are like screaming at you <laughs> or screaming to the side, like in a microphone, you know, it has that feel of like, um, uh, of that kind of expression, you know, and it's not about being polished or not about being, but there's still that, I don't know, like if you go see Blondie, it's in your face, it's loud, it's like forceful, it's uh, confident, but at the same time, it's not polished. She's not polished. She's kind of like, this is about feeling, you know, and then there's the lyrics she's singing about, but uh, the right. real energy of it is the performative aspect of it and the kind of like expression of the physicality of playing the music, I, I think, or at I think least I would interpret that. And that sounds akin to what you're talking about with the, the process of making it is really like this. I think the analogy of lyrics is perfect. I think lyrics and my imagery are in the same category. Yeah. They're part of it. They're, it's interesting sometimes to know them, but um, you don't need to know what the lyrics mean or say and often they don't you know we all do it we make work and people see it in different ways you know are you getting um a lot of sort of joy or frustration from feedback or from the way people are interpreting your work 
Um, no, I, 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 mo I get a lot of joy out of it because, um, although I'm not like, I, <laughs> I can't really use that word joy. I don't know. It's um, interest. Not, you get not because of not because of the specific question. I just feel like, um, yes, joy is one of those uh, emotions that um, is is a weird one for me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's really what I meant. Um, but no, I I feel so extremely uh, happy that the paintings are not all in the studio. Yeah. Um, and they're and they're being seen by people. And I think what is also amazing is people have said um, just amazing, lovely um, things that make me feel like they get it. Yeah. Um, or they get me, or they get, um, or they're amused in a good way, not in a light way. I just mean they're or touched. Um, that's yeah. like the best thing that you could hope for. Yeah, well, I was just at Freeze admiring one of your paintings that was there, and there were these two very fashionable-looking young women looking at the painting in front of me, and the the one was pointing at a part of the painting, and she had these really bright fingernails, and it was like the color just matched, and she was like, yeah, this painting's really rad. <laughs> I thought that was such a great That's reaction great. to the painting, you know? Because like, they great. had the energy looking at it that that painting gave me looking at it you know that sort of like they're just energetic thank paintings. you that but I love that you're so composed <laughs> you're so composed and like you know you're you don't you're not screaming out as no one's really looks or acts exactly like their work does but you know you seem very sort of mellow and your paintings are so rambunctious that I kind of love that dichotomy <laughs> <laughs> I know I think that's funny um there are just a few people in this world, <laughs> my husband mostly, and my family members who have seen me not composed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and they're like, yeah, that And you makes can sense. ask them. Right, right. <laughs> um, but in general, yeah, in general. Well, it's in there, clearly. <laughs> I mean, these are very, you know, active, I don't, engaged. I don't trot it out often. Right, right. Um, in, in, yes. Well, I feel like in my work, uh, there's a lot of real, I mean, even though it looks kind of pleasant, there's a lot of really dark ideas behind it, but I'm a very happy-go-lucky person. <laughs> you know what I you mean? Are, yeah. You know, sometimes the work is a place to let out things that you don't let out in your day-to-day, -day. Or, or it's just a different, you know, it's like things that are happening in your mind that don't necessarily relate to the way that you're carrying yourself or that you are. Anyways, that's a side note. But no, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying. Um, I just didn't know if I was going to come over today and you were going to have like, you know, bleached out hair and like loud music blaring and just, you know, <laughs> but you seem so. I know, I'm very demure. Yes, very demure. And um, right, as I said that into the mic, it reminds me of, you know, sweaty balls, right? <laughs> we're doing the NPR. <laughs> right. I'm very demure. <laughs> <laughs> what do you listen to when you're working? Or do you go silent? Uh, both. I the silence and it uh and then I listen to a lot of music if I if it's yeah. not silent. So, um I listen to pretty much everything, but I have to say mostly it's um this is so cliché, but it's stuff from the 70s. Um Zeppelin. when I was <laughs> Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, 
but I yeah I mean stuff that I listened to when I was in high school I think yeah. is what I still listen to so I think that's the the weird um, thing that happens to a lot of people it was a good time and it also there's, was a really there's good some time. good music that came out. I love Zeppelin. That's how I learned how to play guitar. I listened to the box set and just played by ear, you know. So I've a real sort of intimate knowledge of those songs. But like you were saying, I have no idea what he was singing about. It always <laughs> felt like Lord of the Rings ish to me or something. <laughs> like it's it's oh, so I, uh, yeah, uh, it's so funny. fantasy or something like you know Vikings. Yeah, exactly. I listen a lot to Fairport Convention. I think that's. Um, that really is a, a crucial band for me. Fairport Connection? Convention. Convention? I don't know this band. I stumped you. I love that. Crap. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that, though, because there's things that slip through the cracks. Yeah. What do they sound like? What what's um, it's really British. Really. Um, like mod? Like who-ish? No, not mod at all. Uh I love that that's what I, I pictured the Union Jack when you said British and then the Who. Right. Well, I love the Who. I couldn't love the Who more. Oh, Keith oh my Moon. God. Yeah. I th- yes, Keith Moon. I think about um, Pete Townsend doing windmills is the what I feel like when I'm painting. That's amazing. That's really great. Just FYI. Yeah, okay. yeah. But I show, my, my son plays guitar. You know, he's like 10 years old. And when he f- started really getting into it and getting into ACDC and Zeppelin and stuff, I showed him a video of Townsend just breaking, you know, just that. And then Hendrix with the fire. Yeah. I, I feel like you've got to learn. <laughs> <laughs> this is how awesome it can be. Yeah. <laughs> like try to feel like that while you're playing. Yeah. So you're doing windmills in here when you're <laughs> I actually am. Um, and I wonder sometimes if I'm, yeah, what I lo- yes, anyway, never mind. I was thinking that um of Spinal Tap and how um they do those rock and roll faces as they're playing guitar, oh, yeah, which yeah. is hysterical and I just think it would be really funny if a painter did that while they were painting. I don't think I do. You don't turn it up to 11? <laughs> well, I don't make those faces, right. you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. the, um <laughs> No, this is good stuff. I know you're thinking like what are we talking about, but these are, this is the great stuff that <laughs> Doing windmills and making rock and roll spinal tap faces. Yeah. But you, so you do music, but sometimes silence. Yeah. And do you, uh, are you, uh, you were saying it's a very physical process and we talked earlier about, you know, fitness and stuff like that. Is that something that's part of your daily life too? Is just, is painting very physical for you and your sort of outlet for. It's very physical. I, um, it actually keeps me in shape. I don't go to the gym that much and they're big lugging these things around the studio, which I do keeps me in pretty good shape. You got to move around to paint that. It's not like something you can, you know, do in your lap like you were doing earlier on. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I, they're like, I, I'm, I am going up and down a ladder usually, but I'm also moving the, picking up the paintings and moving them around the studio. Yeah. Um, constantly because I'm working on about four or five simultaneously. Yeah. And I need to just get them situated either on the easels that I use or just, yeah, move them around. So there's a lot of lifting. Um, but that's, that's good. It keeps, it does, it keeps me in shape. And then because it does, I can continue to lift them up, um, yeah. So 
So, and, and one thing I'm really curious about too is like, what, do you, because you kind of have this, it seems like a very, um, I don't know, like a toolbox full of like these images that you said that ever since you were younger, you've kind of used these, these images, but are you, I mean, obviously you're looking at stuff, but are you looking at things in relation to your work a lot or are there other artists or stuff in history or like other media that you're really influenced by? whether it's like literature or, you know, yeah. Netflix or whatever. I mean, is there stuff that you're really into looking at? Not necessarily just for your paintings, but just as like an inspiration oh, in your I visual love, life. Yeah, I love reading, actually. Yeah, I do. Um, oh, and just by the way, when I was, I was in Brussels a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and I went to Ghent and fulfilled a lifelong um, dream of seeing the Ghent altarpiece. Yeah. Just, um, by the way, if you're ever near there and want to just see something amazing. It blew you away? Yeah. yeah. That was like, that was amazing. Um, I haven't been. I want to go. Yeah. No, it's yeah. Um, those Van Eyck brothers. I mean, it's crazy. But um, I love reading. And actually, every night I read before I go to sleep. And... Uh, this is the most pretentious thing, but I'm reading Proust. Oh, nice! And only it's not—it's the best thing I've ever read. I'm—it's um. If you ever feel like just spending a long time reading something, <laughs> it's six volumes. It's worth every second, and I'm reading it really slowly, um, and I want to just continue reading it again and again, even when I'm done, because it's one of the most hypnotic states one uh, for me that I can get into the it's so transportive and his writing is really magical um yeah I think I've only read a little bit in school you know what I mean for required reading and you know what I tried reading it many different times in my life and couldn't stick with it you gotta be ready for it right because it has the the biggest drum roll in the world is like to read you know it's just like such a big deal but if I finally picked it up and read it as if it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's a masterpiece, but it, it just is so good and so funny. He's one of the funniest writers and one of the most, um, yeah, it's like you just go on a journey with him and he's just eavesdropping on everyone and telling you what's going on in their minds and it's it's yeah it's really really good i'm sold i'm gonna try it out i feel like you need to be ready for certain things like i tried do you know infinite jest the david Mm -hmm. foster wall yeah i tried early on reading that book and i just i mean i couldn't i got i kept getting through a certain chunk of it and then forgetting and then rereading it couldn't do it and then fairly recently i went back and and could get through it and it was much I was just, you got to have the attention span and the ability to really dig in. Or realize that you might not have the attention span, so just take it really slow. Like, yeah. I often don't have the attention span, so I reread the same paragraph over and over again, like, ten times, because, you know, it it just is like that, yeah. in terms of how I can sometimes read, and also what certain really good writing sometimes takes yeah. to sink in so it's not like speeding through anything or getting it done or finishing this or it's it's more about the journey uh yes 
having that experience as you're reading, like the present moment of reading. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to saying, I finished that and um, that was good. Right. I used to do that with poetry where I'd try to get it all the time. I try to understand everything and it yeah. wasn't the way to read it. So I was reading like Rimbaud and like Shelley and like I couldn't, I don't know, I just didn't get it. And then at a certain point I was like, oh, I don't need to. It's about the feeling that it gives you, which is nice. It's like open yourself up to just yeah. not have to recap it or define it, you know. But it sounds like you have that, you know, like with your work too, there's like an openness to it that it seems is parallel to that, to where it's not necessarily closed off or defined. These characters and this, the, the patterns and the, the motion of it is loose and it's kind of, it's really about the process. It's about like, you know, the journey of it. Yeah. And that enables you, it sounds like, to work on a lot of different pieces at once. Not everyone can do that. Some people are... I, I really love working that way and I it's also um, it has a technical aspect because I use oil paint mm-hmm. um, drying it, time. it helps uh, I mean there's a drying process you know it, it takes a long time certain colors take forever to dry um, so sometimes I want to let something dry before I go back into it yeah um, and sometimes I don't I'm impatient and I mess something up by going back into it when I probably should have waited and then I get a whole other thing to work with, which is actually trying to turn that into something good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I also like uh, the idea of working on many things be- at once because often a, a color from one painting will suddenly get burned into my uh, retina and I can picture it on another painting mm-hmm. and so I'll just get I'll be influenced the paintings will influence each other yeah well and not to nerd out with tech talk too much but it's are they sometimes fabric stretch sometimes canvas like how do you how do you start a paint do you start it raw without the idea and then you work into the pattern sometimes or how do you decide what you're going to stretch and how you uh, sort of attack the painting um, so there are two paintings in this type types of surfaces in the paint in the studio right now. Um, one surface is classic primed linen. Mm-hmm. Um, another surface is something I started working. I developed this other thing about a year and a half ago, where I um, I'm sewing on different calico fabrics that I've stitched together. Um, so I have, I, I sew them at home. I have a million fabrics that I piece together as if I'm, I feel like it's very similar approach to how I work. I'm just very intuitive putting the fabric pieces together. They're, you know, they're a hodgepodge of um, color and pattern. Um, and then I give them to Alustretch, my stretcher maker, the mm-hmm. best guys. And they um, they stretch them for me and they PVA them. And then I get them back. Well, that's nice. And I've got this uh, new puzzle to work with. Something mm-hmm. familiar because I made it, but something now what am I going to do with kind of unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rotate them and look at them and then very gingerly start drawing into them with charcoal um 
I start painting on camp on regular linen also with charcoal but uh, I feel like with the calico ones they are such a delicate surface they I want the fabric to be as present as possible and not paint over very much at all mm-hmm. and I want to also reorganize them by sort of playing tricks with the patterns and uh, the the signals that one gets from flowers or tiger stripes or stars, you know, all the different things. And I also do these um, sort of, I go back and forth imitating the fabric and then obliterating the fabric um, patterns. So, um, so I, yes, they're, they're delicate in that they could easily reach a point where they're just way too painted and then I have to destroy them. Um, so I work very slowly on them, um, just a little bit of paint every day over a period of weeks and months. Um, and it, it is similar to working on paper where there's like a limit, yeah. uh, as opposed to canvas where I feel like I, I could paint on canvases, like you could do that forever, like they'll take anything. Yeah, because you're not really erasing out, you know what I mean? You're not leaving all that pattern in there, so you could just build your own textures in a way. Right, and there's something also that I've always kept in mind, which is like a painting. I want the paintings to be really interesting throughout the entire process, as opposed to having this idea of what it should look like. And so I'm just in the beginning, so who cares? Like I feel like everything in in these paintings, whether we never see it again or not, is so important to the structure of the painting. Mm -hmm. It's like an armature. So, um, but anyway, yes, on, on a techie, side um the canvas can hold a lot of paint so that can go on forever the calicos um need to be more delicately um even though i'm not physically delicate with them um i need to go slower i need to paint Um, this is a different it must be nice to have that two different paces though it is and especially since you're working on more than one because if you're just doing one you might feel like you know, right. you might overdo it quicker. Exactly. Or this is giving you time and space to move around the work. That's very tr- absolutely true. So I can just put one little something of paint on a calico and then yeah. be done with that for the day, but yet still work all day on something else. Another um, advantage of all these easels. Yes. <laughs> being able to walk around and I, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. So what do you um, what do you have coming up? Or you just had. A show in Belgium, correct? Yes, I, I have a show that opened two weeks ago at, at Rodolf Janssen mm-hmm. in Brussels. And I have a movie that I made with um, two movie two filmmakers, Monica Brand and Francisco Lopez. Um, and that's at the drawing center. That's at the drawing center. That just opened, and that'll be up through the summer. Uh, and we'll do a actually Zena Parkins, who did the soundtrack for it, mm-hmm. will do a live performance nice. um, in June, the end of June, at the drawing center. She's one of my favorite musicians, and we lived across the hall from each other on Ludlow Street for many, many years. So it was great that we got to finally collaborate. That's cool. Um, something we, we want to do for a long time. Um, and I have a show coming up in 
next February with Suzanne Valmetter in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. In L.A. So do you like going out there to L.A.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that, that's the last thing I wanted to ask is like travel. Do you love traveling? And I do. I don't travel that much, though, I have yeah. to say. Um, I just traveled to Brussels, but I hadn't traveled for a few years prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't travel a lot. I like to travel when I need to. Yeah. But yeah. But um, not just like for fun going all over the place. Or no. Yeah. No, in fact, I don't go anywhere usually. So. <laughs> well, you're productive. <laughs> I like to be here. Yeah. I do. Yeah. It sounds like you're a daily, like you feed off that daily practice of going to the studio. And it's the gym too. It's and the I, studio right, and gym in one. The stupid gym. <laughs> Although no. I. I drag myself to the stupid gym once or twice a week it's pesky but yeah it's good you know yeah stay active i guess but yeah so thank you so much for having me over i i've been since i've encountered and like i admitted to you earlier i didn't find your work until relatively recently and i know you've been showing for a long time but i'm just a like a really big fan really love your work thank you so much it was so nice to meet you and like talk to you about your process thank you Thanks thanks a lot (laughs) sound and vision is recorded produced and edited by myself brian alfred you can follow Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. And you can find the podcast, more information and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, Check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening.